Connections. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Connections program on KGNU Boulder, Denver. I'm your host this morning, Liz Lane, and we've been talking about the changing state of marriage in the United States, uh, not just in terms of the expanding number of states permitting same-sex couples to get married, but also uh, the traditional idea of marriage, how we organize our families and our lives. Uh, we had Stephanie Kuntz on earlier, and it was a pleasure to talk to her. She wrote the book Marriage, a History, and uh, now we're being joined from the other side of the country by Claire Huntington. She's a professor of law at Fordham Law School in New York City. She's also the author most recently of the book Failure to Flourish, How Law Undermines Family, and that book is put out by Oxford University Press. Uh, Good morning, Claire. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So um, I know that uh, you and Stephanie know each other's work and and are familiar with each other, and you were able to tune into the last couple of minutes. Um, Before we dive into some of the points that your book makes illustrating uh, many, many ways that the law and family law courts even undermine the maintenance of stable families, I am fascinated by your related work on the subject of performative family (laughs) law and this idea that our, our whole, you know, our whole enacting of our lives, our family lives on the playground, in school, at PTA meetings, in the grocery store, that it's all a show. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's fascinating. And the show ascribes qualities and character traits and certain behaviors that actually have formed our idea of what uh, a family is or should be. So uh, please, uh, if you could uh, go on a tear on that for a little while, it's, it's really interesting. <laughs> Sure, absolutely. I mean, I'm a parent myself, and so I have to say I've experienced this firsthand, you know, which is that you're at the grocery store, the kid's tired, everyone wants to get home and have dinner, and your kid reaches for the candy bar, you know, and you say, no, we're not going to have the candy bar, we're going home to have our, you know, whole wheat pasta and, and kale, and then the kid, of course, throws a fit. And you realize, even though everyone's not staring, out of the corner of their eye, they're looking at you. How is she going to respond? You know, worst case scenario, is she going to wind up and smack the kid? Probably not. But is she going to reply sharply? Is she going to reply sort of kindly? You know, sort of just this way that we... We think of family life as private. This is whole trope we have about family privacy and, oh, you know, this, this is, everything goes on. You know, it, it's, all, it's all sort of hush-hush. But really, we live our family life in the public eye, and we are always watching and looking about and, and judging, really, the choices that other people make. And those judgments can be um, really detrimental, you know, certainly for low-income families and particularly low-income families of color. There are all kinds of judgments that we sort of snap judgments that we make about whether parents and particularly mothers are, are good mothers. But for all families, we make these judgments. But then even more deeply, like you said, it actually feeds into our idea of what does it even mean to be a mother? What does it mean to be a father? I mean, I was actually fascinated by the Super Bowl. The range of um, performances of fatherhood that were in the different commercials on the Super Bowl were extraordinary because it was a whole range from sort of like clueless dad bumbling around to, hey, really careful dad is making sure his kid is snapped in carefully in the car seat and, 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 where's, the, and where's the snuggly. And so I actually think fatherhood is a particularly interesting place right now because we're really in a changing moment. I feel like motherhood has largely been always sort of portrayed and understood as a caring, loving person, but, but the role of father is really changing. And so these performances, particularly these public performances, um, really matter and are really shaping um, our, our, our view, which then in turn sort of shape how the, how the law views it. And, and this 
development over time, over, you know, 100 years maybe even of, and it certainly evolves. Stephanie is is so great to have as a guest because she has this great historical perspective and understanding of, you know, how even how love used to be defined and marriage was right. different and, and this idea of family and how we have this nostalgia for the 50s when in fact it was pretty dreadful for, you know, at least statistically for women and for children, more child abuse, more uh, 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 abuse of spouses, um, you know, and uh, certainly an, an incredibly unequal uh, division of authority as to how the family was even going to be. So, so that's really interesting too. But we, you write a lot this this performative um, aspect of which has informed our idea of what is a good mother, uh, what is a happy family, what's a well behaved child. That it, it would be one thing if we reserve those judgments to uh, or those ideas to sort of how we operate in the world and in, in sort of the social constructs of school and and family life. But actually, these ideas are what drive uh, life and death decisions or, you know, custody or no custody decisions. They have huge impacts. So uh, talk a little bit about about how uh, in your work on this, this has found its way into sort of the um, analysis that a judge might uh, have in a a custody battle and and what that result might be because of our attachment to this performative family law image we have. Okay, great. Um, let me talk about custody in a minute, but let me actually give what I think may be the sort of best example of this, or at least one of, one of the most um, sort of timely examples, which is uh, marriage equality. So what I think is fascinating is very, in, in a very savvy move, the lawyers who have been bringing these cases on the state level and then also on the federal level have been very, very careful, both in the plaintiffs that they've chosen and then also the advocates more broadly in the sort of commercials that they've shown and the, and the public story that we've been telling about gay men and lesbians who want to marry is that they are just like us. You know, they are ball-throwing dads, and the lesbians are soccer moms, and they're, they're a very familiar type. And in particular, I think it's important that we've desexualized these couples and made them parents. So, and this is, in some ways, uh, a strategy to win over the American public, but, but right now a very careful strategy to win over Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court, because I think what he, what's really going to be persuasive to him, so as you know, there's the a big case before the before the court um, this term, right. and he's really sort of the swing vote, or is understood to be the swing vote. And what he's already signaled in earlier cases is that he really cares about the effect of sort of of, of same sex couples not being able to marry, the the detrimental effect of that on children. When you talk about life or death, actually in custody, it's absolutely true. If you have a same-sex couple, and only one parent is recognized as the legal parent, either because they're the biological parent or the adoptive parent, the partner, let's say they're not married, the partner does not necessarily have automatic rights to that child. So if the legal parent dies in an accident or, you know, however, um, then the partner may not be able to have custody. Or if they break up and the legal parent suddenly decides, I don't want you to see our shared child, then the other person is um, is out of luck. And that's tremendously detrimental detrimental, obviously, to adults, but especially to children, not to have that sense of safety that the law is going to protect their, um, their, their relationships. And so that's where I think we've really seen this very careful crafting um, and very successful crafting of the story about, um, about, about marriage equality, that it's not just about sort of dignity and, and, and respecting the, the choices that, that people make, but it's about protecting parents. Um, and, and parents in a very certain, a certain understanding of what parents do and are. 
So following up on that, uh, if you can, and if there is such a case you're familiar with, how would, what are the criteria or the findings that a judge might need to find if a uh, non-biological, non-adoptive parent who's a partner of a person and has been a partner of a person and they had a child in the house, how would that person, has there been success in these uh, uh, who are parents, people who have been parenting these children, but now the couple is broken up and they neither have the status of biological parent or adoptive parent, how do they get custody? Yeah, great question. There's actually a famous Colorado case on this called ELMC. You know, in the cases involving children, we don't use their full names. Right. So there's the initials of the child. And um, it established, and, um, and, other, and courts in other states have found this as well, um, they recognize a doctrine called the psychological parent, where they say if someone has been acting like a parent, and one of the crucial pieces is they're not paid, right? So this is not the nanny, the babysitter, um, who's, being, you know, who's being remunerated for, for, for their work, but someone who has acted like a parent, has established a parent-like relationship with the child, that if like I said, you know, either one parent dies or there's a custody battle, that parent should be recognized at least as having some um, right to visitation with the child. But in that determination and trying to determine who has sort of, quote-unquote, acted like a parent, that's where we come back to the performative nature. So courts courts get in this incredibly fine-grained analysis of literally, did she get a Mother's Day card? Did she do the carpool? Did she, you know, sort of, and on one hand, you can say, well, okay, those are the kinds of things that we think parents do, and we want to make sure this wasn't just a friend who stopped by for dinner once a month, you know, who's now suddenly claiming they have custody to the child. But on the other hand, it's a really searching inquiry that's holding families to a standard that maybe other families, married families, don't meet themselves. Maybe they forget Mother's Day every year, or the parent couldn't care less about the carpool and has the babysitter do the carpool or whatever it is. I know Um, families like that, and they're great parents. Uh, Right. So it's a really, um, it's a very judgmental and very kind of um, normative idea of what we think families should be. And if uh, same-sex couples don't meet that standard, then they really can, um, can, can fall short. And that's why marriage equality is so important, because it'll grant the same rights to married couples, well, to same-sex married couples as now opposite-sex married couples have, which is that you get, you get simply by virtue of the marriage, you then have a right to have custody of the child. The, the child born into the marriage, both parents would be recognized as parents, and then you'd have a sort of plain vanilla custody battle, which is not pretty either, but at least you're not trying to prove that you got Mother's Day cards and that you actually should even have a seat at the table in the custody battle. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Claire Huntington. She's a professor of law at Fordham Law School in New York City, and she's the author most recently of the book Failure to Flourish, How Law Undermines Family. If you have a comment or a question for Claire, you can call us at 303-442-4242, and Ava will put you on the air. Claire, uh, going back to uh, the Supreme Court and, and judicial rulings in this area, the, the court has addressed this concept of family before, and um, often it's come up in terms of housing ordinances, uh, the number, you know, rules governing who can live, who is a family, who can live uh, in this house, how many, you know, if there's 
are bars to unrelated people living together. They typically define who who is related for purposes of of housing. And the Supreme Court has uh, made some interesting decisions about that. And um, in doing so, has kind of given a nod to a, an evolving idea of family, particularly uh, family uh, for Hispanic families uh, who so often have multi-generations living together. So address that, if you will. Sure, absolutely. So this is a case actually a couple decades old now, um, Moore versus City of East Cleveland. Um, And in that case, it was a grandmother who was living with a child and then two grandchildren. And so so it was a multi-generation family, and there was an ordinance that didn't allow, you know, that particular con- configuration. It allowed some sort of extended family, but, but not the one that, 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 that was there. And the Supreme Court struck down that ordinance. And um, probably most importantly was a, actually wasn't the main opinion, but was what we call a concurring opinion by, by two of the justices, Justice Brennan and then Justice Marshall, kind of two of the most um, you know, iconically uh, liberal justices, who said, look, we need to recognize that Americans you know, have, always, um, have always struggled economically. And one of the ways in which people have responded to that is to, you know, come together as an extended family and that not everyone, this sort of ideal, kind of like Stephanie was talking about, the ideal that you have a mother, father, and two children living in a home, that's just, that's not true for large swaths of the American public, never has been and isn't now, and that the law needs to have a broader conception of um, what of, of what family is. So it was a pretty remarkable opinion and really in some ways kind of lays the groundwork for, I think, um, a, a broader conception now in terms of family. Now, it's a little different to say, the, you know, you can't have a housing ordinance, a zoning ordinance that limits the number of people that live in a house together. That's one sort of question, to say that the state can't make your life harder. It's another thing to suddenly say, well, should then we be able to have Social Security survivor benefits for unmarried couples or for, you know, for whatever it might be, the sort of range of affirmative benefits that we get from the state. It's not I'm not so sure the case is going to take us that far, but it is at least lay some groundwork, at least some understanding that for a variety of practical or personal reasons, people choose to configure their families in all kinds of ways, and that really the law should, should, should defer to families, give some respect to that. Well, and in fact, this this approach to defining family or redefining family is actually one of your recommended responses to this reliance on performative, uh, on evaluating families and what is a family, what is a good family or a good parent based on these performative ideas. And yet you acknowledge that we really... As much as we might um, in recognizing this performative nature and and how narrowly uh, circumscribed uh, good and bad might be in this context and and where did we get this idea in the first place of what a family should be, that breaking that down a little bit and cases like the Moore case is a really foundational first step that we have to get our institutions on board first with recognizing that family is a lot of different things. And now, of course, 38 states are recognizing that a family can begin with a same-sex couple as well. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think, and, and my own personal hope, is that marriage equality is soon a sort of just a, a commonplace, you know, that the Supreme Court says, you know, this, the Constitution protects us, and this is just widely acknowledged. I, I, I hesitate to say we're done with the issue because I don't think we are, and I think there'll be plenty of skirmishes about, well, then does the photographer have to, you know, photograph the same-sex wedding and those kinds of things. But, but as a kind of fundamental matter, should 
families headed by um, same-sex couples be recognized, I, I think we're mostly there. Um, the bigger question really is going to be, and this is what Stephanie was talking about um, at the end of your conversation with her, what do we do with these so-called non-marital families? And as I'm sure she mentioned, you know, 40% of children are born to unmarried parents now. Um, and most of those parents are not going to get married. This is not just the sort of child was born before the wedding. Um, and many of those parents are then actually going to break up at some point. Um, um, you know, just as, as as married couples get divorced as well, 50, but unmarried couples. Right. Yeah, it's a little. <laughs> the statistic is complex, but but it's, yes, they certainly. Um, they, they you know, ma- married couples don't, don't don't always stay together, but unmarried couples are more likely than married couples to split up and, and at least split up more quickly. So then the question is, sort of, how should the law respond to these non-marital families? And and this is something that I've really been um, working on a lot recently because I'm particularly concerned about the law's lack of protection for unmarried fathers, um, that the law really makes it harder for these fathers who, you know, granted, have all kinds of challenges. So, um, you know, the the studies that are done in the United States of these these non-marital families show that the unmarried fathers in particular are, you know, likely, you know, the very high rates of not graduating from high school, high rates of uh, involvement in the criminal justice system, you know, and then they face a workplace where it's already difficult to try and find a, a job that they could even sort of begin to support um, a child would. So these fathers have a lot of challenges, and yet they love their children and want to have a relationship with them, and the law really makes it a lot harder. In 15 states, when a child is born to unmarried parents, the the mother automatically gets sole custody of the child, and the father has to go to court to try and get visitation. These fathers don't do that. They can't begin to afford a lawyer. A lot of them don't go to court either sort of as a cultural reason or whatever it might be. Yes, they could go themselves and represent themselves, but that's simply not what they do. So instead, it's the mother who gets to decide whether or not the father's going to see the child. And maybe she turns away the father for good reasons, you know, a history of domestic violence or concerns, you know, about substance abuse or whatever it might be in the way that, you know, all families struggle with those kinds of issues. Um, But she can also turn away the father for not very good reasons, like she has a new boyfriend and it makes it more complicated when the father comes around. Um, And that father has no legal rights unless he's gone and gotten a, a custody order. So as a result, it makes it so much harder for these unmarried fathers to maintain a relationship um, with, with, with their children. And that's what we see over time, these fathers kind of drifting away from the children and the children really losing the benefit of, of, of having a relationship with, with one of their parents. And it's a huge loss and has a major impact and perhaps uh, begins a bad cycle all over again. Yeah, no, no, it's a, it's, it's a real problem. And I mean, I go on and on. I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which the law plays a particularly pernicious role. So it's not just custody rules, it's also child support rules, which are important and enormously benefit about 75% of the population, if you take the sort of top three, um, you know, the, the you know, top 75% of the population income-wise, they really benefit from, from strong child support enforcement and ensuring that the, you know, a non-custodial parent pays the custodial parent the, the money to help take care of the child. But the system is set up in such a way that it, it, it helps 75% at the cost of the 25%. Because what happens is we have these very um, onerous rules about child support and, and not forgiving debt and all kinds of you know, terrible implications if you don't pay child support, like losing your driver's license. Well, then it's so much harder, of course, to get to, to a, job a job and have a job. Um, and so 
these low-income fathers who can't begin to pay the child support orders that are against them, um, that end up with huge arrears. They then, you know, become frustrated with the mothers of their children who, you know, they see this sort of blame for the for part of their problem. And, and anyway, so it's really, we, um, and, and then the other problem is we force these fathers to pay these, child, we enter these child support orders, but we don't then at the same time give them a custody, right, a sort of a visitation order. Uh, only, Texas is the only state that requires um, a, a, a child support order to be accompanied with a visitation order. Some other states do it as a matter of course, but other states completely bifurcate the process. So you can have an administrative decision that says, okay, you order this, this, this you, you have to pay this child support. And then in order to get visitation, the father has to go to the court system to get that, rather than a sort of one-stop shopping that says, yes, you should help pay for your children, but you know what? You should also be able to see your children. Um, and, we, and we haven't done that. And to me, actually, I'm so glad you started off with the performative piece, because it all comes back to that. It comes back to still our performance of fatherhood is very much about economic fatherhood. Right. We really think fathers should pay. And when they don't pay, that's a real problem. And we really hold them, um, you know, we, we, we really blame them when, when they can't. Well, and your citation of of states that don't marry the two, no pun intended there, that, that you pay yeah. and then you get to have a time and, you know, enforceable time with your, with your child that, uh, as you say, it's bifurcated and separated. And it sounds like it's the most important thing that the father needs to do is to pay. Yeah, absolutely. Which that's, we know, uh, that, that a father's role is just hugely important for sons and for daughters and uh, is a big indicator of, um, of, you know, general wellness later on. So, so really, you, you just um, raise such a frustrating thing. Now, what about fathers, a big um, father's rights movement in the country? Is that where the work is focused right now at the court level, or maybe at least trying to have this process make a little bit more sense that if you're in the system for a support order, you similarly should be able to uh, guarantee yourself some um, access to your child as well? It's a good question. Yeah, the father's rights movement is not a sort of monolithic uh, movement. I mean, there are a lot of different strands of it, and different people want different things. But I would say, yes, certainly there is a group of men who absolutely what they want is to be able to see their children, and they're, they're, they're trying to get courts to see them as... Um, you know, well, for example, they've been successful in some states to get uh, states to pass laws that are called different things like equal access or sort of um, what basically what the law does is it requires the court to try to maximize the time, not necessarily 50-50, but maximize the time that the child has with each um, parent. And in the states, like Wisconsin is one of them, um, in the states like this where they have passed these laws, it really has increased the amount of time um, at least some fathers have with their children, and particularly basically what's is maximize the time that upper income fathers, particularly fathers who can afford lawyers um, that they're able to have with their children. It really hasn't had a huge effect on the lower income fathers. They still really typically do not have any kind of meaningful custody with with their children, and not necessarily because they want it and the courts are denying it to them. Again, it's a much larger structure that these men are facing these enormous challenges of not being able to have steady jobs or, you know, not being in a position really where they, 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 they could have meaningful custody. So in the couple minutes that we have left, I want to uh, turn our attention a little bit or just, you know, drill in a little bit on your book, Failure to Flourish, because um, not only do you sort of lay out all the many ways that the law and not just family law um, undermines uh, 
stability in families. But you have a, a lot of suggestions for how to make things better. And some of them are a little bit surprising in terms of um, right here. And you, you have a section on collaborative divorce. And maybe we'll have time to talk about that. But you were you talk about Stapleton, the Stapleton yeah. development. Um, you spent some time here in Boulder at uh, CU Law um, a couple years ago. And, uh, and you cite Stapleton as an example of sort of a public project that worked for for reasons of transportation or, or other you know economic building reasons, but really is a great example of how cities and uh, others can can really do things that will support stable families. And and it's nothing to do with the law; it has to do with sort of environment and community. So, talk a little bit about that, if you would. Sure, absolutely. I think we're much too quick to sort of say, oh, the law can't help. When people think about the law, they think, oh, it's a family court judge sitting there. But really, the law is our whole legal structure. It's our government structure. And then sort of what requirements does the government place? So, for example, on um, when they, you know, decommissioned uh, Stapleton Airport, there was this large swath of land. And the question was, what, could, what was going to happen with it? And a group came together and worked very closely with the city. And the city of Denver really... Um, oversaw this process. I'm sure many listeners know this um, much, much, much better than I do. But the point was the city of Denver played a very active role in carrying out what the vision was for for redeveloping this land. It didn't just say, okay, look, hey, here's a chance to make a buck. We're going to sell off the land to a developer, let the developer do whatever they want. And the problem is developers have economic pressures on themselves, and so what they need to do is build and then sell quickly. But, but, they, but the problem with that is, of course, if you're going to build and sell quickly, you want to do things cheaply, like not necessarily put in sidewalks or you know, not figure out what are the kinds of things that really make a difference for a family. So for a family to be able to have easy access to a playground, to have quick access access to work on public transportation so they can get to and from work but then be back home and be with their family, particularly for a family to be able to have social ties. I mean, you know, parenting is so isolating, um, and really parents need a tremendous amount of support. We know this time and again. When parents have support, they're much more able to meet their their children's um, needs. And so what we also know from communities is when there are simple things like sidewalks and porches, people develop far more social ties um, with their neighbors. So the city of Denver did this remarkable thing where it teamed up with a with a developer, and it's what it did a number of things. But one of the key parts was it sold the land in just small steps, so that the developer did not have to take on an enormous amount of debt and could do this more slowly, and um, really set up what I think is just a model neighborhood in terms of um, family functioning. And really, it has all of those components. It has you know access to green spaces, access to jobs, access to downtown, um, but then particularly easy ways that just facilitate interaction with having commercial areas and having, um, you know, sort of sidewalks and, and, and just ways for neighbors to, to get to know each other. And then also setting aside, so it wouldn't just be something just for wealthy families um, or upper-income families, setting aside some of that housing um, sort of as, as moderate and low-income housing. Now, I know there's always a question of sort of how much housing and how affordable is it. Those, those are always issues. Um, but just as an idea, right, that we can have a mixed income neighborhood that is designed to really foster family functioning and that a, a, a government entity, be it a city or a state, can play an active role. And I only describe one way. There are multiple ways um, in, in, in which the city of Denver played an active role in, in carrying out this vision. Um, that, I think, is what is really promising and, and, and holds, um, uh, you know, a, 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 creates a great model for, for what other areas could do as well. And I want to go quickly to Lynn, who has a question, then we have to wrap up. Hi, Lynn, you're on okay. the air. 
Yeah, um, this land use <laughs> is really striking to me because I've been at housing meetings all week long, and I support Airbnb a lot as a way for alternative families to better utilize land. Um, but regarding the custody issue, I'm a female, and I was non-custodial, and I paid huge amounts of custody to a father who wanted abortions and filed suit against me. So I feel like it's kind of discrimination to say that um, men that um, can't afford their kids are having trouble. I could afford my kids. He was just a huge high-income person compared to me. I was thirty to $50,000 a year income, and he was upwards of 130000 And then he was, you know, over twice what I earned. And I got to see my kids every other Saturday overnight. And I never even had babysitters before, for my kids before we were apart. Right. So there's other yeah. issues here. And I don't believe in marriage, and I will never be married, and I don't support it, and I have alternative households. But I'll be paying for a house until I'm 80, 90 years old. And if it hadn't been, and I'm saving everything for my kids, because he's married now and has other kids, not his own kids, but his wife's kids. And I know that my kids will need things. And I, I saved up. I just commuted to Denver for 25 years, earning, you know, they're 30 and 31 now. Yeah, um, thanks, Lynn. That's, that's a good story. I do have to cut you off, though, now. So yeah. thanks for the point. Okay. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, uh, thanks so much, Lynn, for that. Uh, Claire, are you there? Yes. Hi. So, uh, Claire, we have to wrap up now. I want to thank you so much for your time, and we will post a link to your book, Failure to Flourish, How Law Undermines Family Relationships, on our news.kgnu.org website. And um, any final thoughts? Well, I just want to say thank you. These are really tough issues. You know, as, as, as Lynn just said, it's, um, these, these, these are always painful cases. Um, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you about these, uh, these, these important issues. Thanks again, Claire Huntington, law professor at Fordham University Law School. And that does it for our show today. Bye-bye, Claire. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, thanks also to Stephanie Kuntz, and we'll post links on her uh, to her book on our news.kgnu.org website. And stay tuned next for the Morning Sound Alternative. For KGNU, I'm Liz Lane.